series on First Peter. Uh, did you guys know? This is a did you this is a did you know introduction. Did you know that there are sects of Mormons in Utah who practice polygamy because they read it in the Bible? Did you know that people justified their support for slavery and their opposition to slavery from the Bible? Did you know there's people who believe that we should execute homosexuals because the Bible says to do that? You might not even know that in the Old Testament it says that. So do we really want to follow the teachings of a book which inspires so many divergent and troubling lifestyle choices? And you may think, is this the vineyard? Is this a Christian church? Why are you asking us this? Is there something wrong with you, John? Did you take your medication? Uh, a lot of followers of Jesus are confused about how to relate, like Jay said, to teachings in the Bible. How do you relate to some of these teachings? A lot of followers in Jesus don't like to admit it, but they're embarrassed to admit that they believe the Bible is God's word. And I know people who you know, candidly have said to me, you know, work when people start downing Christians and stuff and they, they, they look at me, I don't want to open my mouth and say, yeah, I believe that book, that crazy book, you know, those crazy people, I'm that tribe. That's not an uncommon thing. And a lot of followers of Jesus, maybe, you know, some here sitting listening to me, don't read or really practically try to obey the Bible as a way of life. So this creates a quandary because most people know when you're around followers of Jesus, the, the Bible is a pretty big deal. And so what a lot of people do when they're caught in this quandary of not understanding how to relate to the Bible and figure it out and understand it, uh, they fall back to, I'm just going to pick and choose from the Bible what seems best to me, right? I don't get it. Some of its stuff just sounds crazy. That's just the crazy part. <laughs> I don't want to be a crazy person, so I'm just going to ignore that. But there's some of it I, I get, and so I believe it's from God, so I'm going to, like, that's the part I'm going to believe. And then there's other people who go, I respect the Bible, and I'm a follower of Jesus, but I defer, I'm going to defer to the best thinking of our culture on ethics. You know, what I, what I was taught in college or, you know, what I read uh, on Reddit, I'm not sure that's the best thinking of our culture, <laughs> always, what you read on Reddit, but I don't always know who's behind some of those posts. And, you know, years ago, Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers, uh, I think he was the third president of the United States, he had a viewpoint that the Bible was full of a lot of good stuff and a lot of bad stuff. And he literally went through a copy of the Bible and he cut out the parts that he didn't agree with. He literally, that you can, he has the Bible, you can find it. And as you go through it, it's like there's whole sections of it that are gone. And there's pages that have like one little piece of it that's in there. It was like a confetti Bible. And some people, we, we kind of laugh. You guys are giggling. I knew it when I said that. Some of you were going to laugh. But some of us, that's how we live. And it isn't always because we're just ornery. A lot of times we just read it and go, I don't know what to do with that. Like in Alpha on Wednesday night, somebody asked me at, at the Alpha course, 
they ask a, a question about an Old Testament passage. I don't get why should I read that? It doesn't make any sense to me. And I said, well, let's talk about that for a second. By the time we finished talking, they went, oh, my gosh, that is so, that's great. <laughs> I didn't realize that that was that, that's what it was about. But until we can grapple with it a little bit, we tend to have a Bible that's a lot more like Thomas Jefferson's than like this, right? That's, that's a whole narrative story that, that's cohesive and, and impacts us. So if you're a follower of Jesus, who should get to say how we live? Who gets to say how we live? I titled today's talk, who gets to say? Who gets to say? And I want to read, we're in, in uh, 1 Peter. And I, uh, sorry, I wrote wrong, Jay. Jay. I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 to 25. It's just a couple of verses. We're going to read it. So who gets to say? This is what Peter says, all right? 1 Peter 1. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, under the chair seat in front of you, paperback Bibles look like this. We're on page 840. Verse 22, chapter 1, 1 Peter. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Then he quotes this Old Testament passage. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers... And the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this, the gospel, is the word that was preached to you. So let's pray for a minute. Lord, we just ask you to uh, illuminate our minds and speak to us and help us to uh, grapple with this issue of who gets to say how we live and what your word, what role your word, the Bible, the scriptures have to say about that. And, and play in that. Amen. So what we read there from verse 22 to 25 is Peter talked about the Bible four times in that little passage. If you, if you might not have caught it, but he says first that they'd obeyed the truth. And then he talked about how they were born again by perishable, imperishable seed, uh, the living and enduring word of God. Then he quoted a passage that talked about the word of the Lord stands forever. And then he said, and this is the word that was preached to you. So four times in this little passage, this short text, he's talking about the scriptures, the Bible. Now back then, all they had was what we call the Old Testament. The writings from Genesis to Malachi. Uh, the law and the prophets and the writings. They, the, you'll hear them quoted that way in the New Testament. And so... Then, ironically, Peter links the gospel and the message about Jesus and equates it as the word of God, just like the Old Covenant, the Old Testament was, the Law and the Prophets. So he says, there's, you, you've got the Law and the Prophets that you know are God's word. Now he says, we also have the message about Jesus. And then he's talking, he's, his writings, and if you keep reading First and Second Peter, Peter starts talking about the apostles' teachings as Scripture. So all of a sudden, you have this body of teachings, and a lot of these letters haven't been brought together into what we would call the New Testament, clearly at this point. But you see this idea that God was speaking to people, and that God got to say 
who gets to say? God gets to say. And that he gets to say through the writings of these people that he inspired to write things. And here's the question, though. Uh, well, Peter saw Scripture. If you read this, he's implying that Scripture is superior to all other human wisdom. When he, puts, when he puts this Old Testament passage in here, he says, you guys, your lives have been shaped by this new message, the gospel, and it's changed you. You've been born again. Your life has been transformed. You, you've been renewed as people by receiving the power of this message, and you've let it shape you and transform you, right? And then he compares it, uses this passage to, to, to sort of nuance it, and he says, and all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of God stands forever. In other words, all these other messages that you used to build your life on, all these other sources of wisdom that, that you used to value and you let shape you, the power of the gospel eclipsed them and changed you that now you recognize there was some good in them, but what God's word offers is of a completely different caliber. It's not just human wisdom, it's God's wisdom. And he's, can you see how he's comparing them? And he's just, it's just so deft how he, in, in just a couple of sentences, how he makes this, draws this comparison. And, and what Peter's basically saying is, we need to have, uh, well, he's affirming them for their living under God's word. He said, you've begun to live under God's word, and you can see the difference it makes in your life, and you can see why it's to be valued above all other wisdom. Now, he isn't saying that the wisdom that human beings can come up with is worthless. See, sometimes Christians create this either-or thing that is wrong. He's not saying that. He's just saying that ultimately the Word of God is going to be the thing that in the end, and sometimes it takes a while to see that God's wisdom is better than the best thinking of any generation. Sometimes it takes a while to see that because it says it here. All men are like grass and their glory like the flowers of the field. Have you ever looked at the flower in, the, in your garden right now and they're just blooming and beautiful? Let, let's go back to that garden in October and November and December. And all of a sudden, there's just stubs, right? Just the, the, the snow has pounded them over. And then come back again in February and look at those glorious flowers. And a lot of times when we're in a situation where people are are putting forward ideas and notions, they can sound so persuasive and powerful. And you compare them to God's word and you go, gosh, man, I don't know. This is really tough. And what Peter's saying is just step back for a second. Remember what you've read. Eventually, if these two things conflict, go with God's word. It may take a while, but you will see that this wisdom will trump all the best thinking of people when they contradict one another. Now, P Peter, how does Peter, who lived in an area where there was a time where the Jews were called the people of the book, and that was to mock them. There's never been a time where the Bible was, you know, universally lauded, like this is such wonderful information for us all to have, right? And it wasn't back then. And so to have what we would call today a high view 
of the Bible or of Scripture as God's Word and as that that gets the say, that we live under it, back then it was never popular. It's not popular today. And so you live in, you, you're, you're swimming in an environment, if you're a follower of Jesus, and this is, this is sort of the backdrop of this whole, talk, this whole series we're doing, is how do you live your life in an environment where people think your faith is irrational, irrelevant, and even extreme? And it, it undermines the common good. And people think, like we uh, at Alpha, part of the video presentation was they interviewed all these people all over the place, young people, older people, all kinds of different ethnicities, and they said, what do you think about the Bible? And they had all these different opinions. But generally, their opinion was, ah, you know, ah, nah, you know, it ranged from, to, ah. And it's always been like that. And, you know, I've observed, and I've pointed out to you over and over and over, we are social beings. We're meant to influence others and be influenced by others. And so you can't live in the world you live in that has that sort of opinion and it not work on you and have some impact on you to undermine your sense that you can live under this book. Now, I want to tell you, it's, you're not living under the book. You're living under God. And I'm going to nuance that in just a second. Because this book is not God, okay? It's not God. In fact, if you, if, if you open it up, a lot of these will say God's Word, right? So it's not God. And it's important for you not to read it like this is God. There's something that has to happen in your heart in terms of a posture of your heart that tries to make this book God that gets you into the trouble that we all talk about in, in moments like this. When people become fundamentalists or literalists or they make all the mistakes that they make about the Bible, it's because they think God has spoken and they, right, but they think there's a Father and there's a Son and there's a Holy Bible. And there's no Holy Spirit in that equation. The Bible doesn't replace the Holy Spirit. He's the one that the Bible says inspired the book. It's spirit-breathed. And so there's a posture we have to have as we approach this book, I'll tell you about it in just a second, that keeps us from going in the, the, the fundamentalist ditch, that keeps us in this balance of having a high view of Scripture and yet not becoming the worst kind of Pharisees and literalists who, who create all the crazy problems that Christians have to deal with. So... Why did Peter refuse to sort of just embrace the trend of his time, which was to not respect the, the fact that, that the, the Scriptures were God's Word? How did he do that? It's really simple. Peter lived under God's Word because Jesus lived under God's Word. We live under God's Word because Jesus lived under God's Word. If you read the Gospels, you will encounter... Jesus as Lord, and I'm gonna, uh, we're going to read a passage if you want to start turning to it now. It's Matthew chapter 5, where you see Jesus, who Peter followed, living under the Word of God. So let's look at a passage here. Matthew 5, verse 17 to 20. I'll read this to you. It's real short. Again, oh, hold on. Go to Matthew 4. So Jesus lived under God's Word. There's three things you can say about that. The first one was that Jesus 
found life in the scriptures. He found life in them. Now, how many of you have ever read the temptation of Jesus? Read the story of the temptation of Jesus? Raise your hand. Just hold it up. People are like, if I, I don't know. Have I read it? I don't know. Raise your hand if you've read it. I don't know. Have I read it? I don't know. You know raise your hand. Hold it up. I want to see, just so I don't have to repeat the whole thing. Okay, good. I don't have to read it. You remember the three temptations? Jesus is in the desert. He's just been baptized. He's had this dramatic sort of coming on the scene where the Holy Spirit comes down on him. And the Father speaks. Everybody hears God say, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And it's, it's big. And then that same Spirit who came on him drives him out into the wilderness. And out in the wilderness... He's fasting and praying, and he's going through the temptation that Adam and Eve went through in the garden, but Jesus is enduring it in a desert all by himself. Adam and Eve had each other, and they had God. Jesus is out in the desert, and there's three temptations. And with each temptation, Satan is coming to him and saying, there's something you really need, Jesus, and I'm going to give it to you. And each time... The temptation is offered, what does Jesus respond with? With scripture. Now, a lot of us think, well, then scripture must be like a shield that we use, right? And we think that's what it talks about in Ephesians 6. Wrong. Satan was offering him life. He was offering him something that God was going to give Jesus. He was offering him a substitute. And Jesus turned to the scripture and clung to the life of God that scripture promises. He wasn't using scripture like an object. You understand? This is what we this this is where we slip into that the Bible is this abstract thing that we use. It's this living thing. It's alive. And Jesus when when the enemy said to him, look at you, you're fasting, and, and, it, and 40 days has gone by. You've got to be hungry now. Turn the stones into bread. And Jesus could have done that. And Jesus said, no. Man can't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God's mouth. And he, was, he had already taken the, the word of God because he was raised as a Jew, and they heard the word, and they were taught to memorize the word. They, they took it in their hearts he took that word that, that was in the Old Testament and he stood on it and he said, God's word is what I need more than I need food. I do need food. He said, I can't live without food. I know that. But I need something more than food right now. I need to hear from my father because my soul will be nourished if God speaks to me. It won't just be nourished what I really need. And this is what a lot of times we forget. Because we oftentimes use, we, we have emotional needs, we have soul needs, and we turn to food. And it's not sinful, but it's a certain point, it becomes destructive. And it fills us up. And then the thing that our soul really needs, which is hear from God, by waiting on God, in the midst of that hunger that we feel, we turn to something temporary, and it gives us some kind of satisfaction, but it, it misses the deepest needs of our heart. So Jesus found life in the scriptures. That's why he lived under them. And in Matthew 5, verse 17, we see Jesus obeying scripture and valuing scripture in a way that a lot of times we don't as believers. Here's what he said. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus didn't pick and choose what he liked in the law and do what he liked and do whatever he wanted because he didn't like something. He said, all of this has value and merit. Now, he goes on and as he starts teaching about how the law applies to those who are his followers, he starts to nuancing it. And we'll, we'll talk about that some other time because it's a, it's a big subject. But not everything in the Old Testament is binding on people who are followers of Jesus. There's ceremonial and civil and other kinds of laws that were for Israel's time. But the moral law is still binding on us. And Jesus says that. And the apostles say that. And they summed up all the law. And right, two commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That there isn't a law in the Old Testament that doesn't fall under those two summaries. And so Jesus then, if you go on and you read as the, as the Sermon on the Mount continues, there's stuff in the Bible, Old and New Testament, that's not easy to understand, isn't there? Some of us don't like to admit that because that sounds like, oh, the, I must be saying something's wrong with the Bible if I say it's complicated and hard to understand. Well, that's what Peter said in his next letter. He said, there's some stuff in there, like in Paul's letters, that's hard to understand. Well, when that, when, when you encounter stuff that's hard to understand, you can't just go, well, I don't, that's part of the stuff. I'm going to do Thomas Jefferson, being Tom, let's just cut it out. <laughs> just ignore it, do what I want. No, Jesus said, not one little bit of that is meaningless. It's all meaningful. And we need to understand it. We need to grapple with it. So, the next verse, he says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, don't murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with his brother, and he goes on. So what he says is, what you see Jesus over and over and over do, and like just here in the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, is he doesn't challenge scripture, he challenges current misinterpretations of it. And, and the truth is, every generation we have to grapple with different parts of Scripture and begin to test, is our understanding of that really square with what God's trying to say? That's how the church constantly gets renewed because all of a sudden, things that we thought are okay, we begin to look at Scripture and not test Scripture, but test what we think about those practices. And we begin to think, Hmm, I don't think this lines up with this. I think we need to rethink what we have, the church has taught about this. There's all kinds of issues that the church has had to, to grapple with and realize we, we've missed God on this. The church for a long time, the whole Reformation got started because the, the, the people of God were practicing some really crazy things. And a few leaders just finally go, one in particular, a guy named Martin Luther just said, this is whack, you know, and, and he kept like, 
you know, agitating around it, and no one would listen to him. So he, t he wrote down on a piece of paper all the things he thought were the, where the church was really missing it, and he nailed it to the church door. So like everybody had to, you couldn't avoid it anymore. To go into church, you had to see this on the door. Well, obviously, that didn't make the people who ran the church very excited and set off, you know, some fireworks. But something the church thought was okay was really squirreled. And there are times where we have to stop and think about that. And you may think, oh my gosh, that's upsetting. It is upsetting. And sometimes it creates some tension and some heat. But the Holy Spirit, Paul was doing that. If you keep reading this, he goes from murder to adultery to divorce to oaths to vengeance, loving your enemies, giving, prayer, issue after issue after issue after issue after issue of big life-impacting teachings, Jesus said, let's grapple with that. Let's, let's wrestle with this idea in this text and see what should we be thinking about this. He didn't just say, oh, whatever people have said throughout history about this, you know, case closed, don't bring it up, don't be a troublemaker. Jesus brought those things up. He ruffled feathers, right? And it's hard for us to do that. Some of us are more peacekeeping kind of people, uh, and I get that. But there's a time to, to, to stir the pot, and that's what Jesus was doing. He wasn't popular because of that. Now, in Matthew 28, Jesus sent his disciples out. This is like one of the last, very last things he said. Matthew said it was the last thing he said. Luke said there was other things, but he sent, so let's just say, I'm Jesus, I'm about to return to the Father, and you're all the 120 or so disciples who are still following me after my death and resurrection, and I give you your marching orders, my last teachings to you, and I said, listen, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, so here's that authority thing that Peter's talking about, who gets to say, Jesus addresses that question. All through his teaching, he addressed it. He addressed it at the end. And he says, I've got all the authority in heaven and earth. It's been given to me. I get to say. And I'm sending you to go into all the world and make disciples, turn ordinary people into people like you who want to live under my word and want to pass that on. That obedience is not optional, but obedience is heartfelt life drive of, of following Jesus. Jesus lived under his father's word. You live under my word because I and the father are one. And I want you to go teach them to do that. Teach them to obey everything I've taught you, which means they're going to go reach people and teach them to obey. Does it sound like Jesus is, is unclear about who gets to say in this? But in the church, obedience seems to be this thing that we think is optional. That I get to say. I get to say and do you understand, that's the way the culture we swim in sees things. And it begins to leak into our thinking. And we have to be reminded, that's what Peter's doing in First, first and Second Peter. Uh, I'm going to quote one more passage when we close here in a second. Where he's trying to remind them that Jesus, one of Jesus' most profound titles is the Word. The Logos. The Word from God. Who gets to say God gets to say. He hasn't left us without instruction and teaching on everything we really need to know. Now, there are things, you know, the Bible doesn't talk about nuclear power. It doesn't talk about social media. 
It talks about how to relate to people. It would be great if we introduced some of Jesus' ethics on relationships into our interactions on social media. It would probably make social media a lot safer for human beings. I mean, they should have like a warning when you open up a social media app, hit like a skull and crossbones. You're, you know, you're going to get corrupted possibly by how much time you spend on this. But social media is not evil. It's just, it, you know, it's just a tool. But boy, it's a, it can be a powerful tool, can't it? So Jesus viewed scripture. Now, this is where I want to, to draw you to the takeaway. We live under God's word because Jesus lived under God's word. And here's the thing Jesus took and passed on to his disciples is Jesus viewed scripture as the voice of the beloved. He viewed scripture not as commands, not just as commands. Not just his rules. I mean, important rules. He viewed it as the voice of the beloved. Because when you read the Old Testament, the law in the Pharisees' hands became something to be analyzed and a tool to be used and, and, and a way to have power over people. And Jesus came along and said, eh, wrong, wrong, wrong. And right from the get-go, you see Jesus praying and engaging scripture as the voice of the beloved, of his father. And you see his disciples picking that up and getting that posture that this thing is not God, but it brings the voice of God. It's alive. There's a guy named Mike Cosper. Who's, he's an author. I love him. He's a, a pastor in uh, Colorado. And he said this, uh, we, we, we see the Bible as a living whole. A breathing, fiery creature full of mystery, something to be approached with care and humility. And if you approach the Bible, and I don't mean that we, we can't approach it with questions. We need to approach it with questions. If you approach the Bible primarily as something to be grammatically parsed, you're going to miss the life that made Jesus live under it and obey it and wrestle with it and hear the voice of his father through. You're going to miss that. You're going to miss it completely. Because the, the, the tools that we use to study literature are important. They are really important. And there are aspects of the Bible that really require us to use some of those tools to get at the meaning of it. But if we don't engage those tools with a posture of humility and I'm coming to this thing to understand it. And you know what understand means? <laughs> to live under. To understand something is to be mastered by something else. It's to be impacted by it. When you try to understand another person, you're giving them a gift. But you're also submitting yourself and your desires and your preferences and all those things to this person. And you're giving them a place that you, that you would like to have. Well, when we do that to God, we, when we approach his word that way, all of a sudden, we begin to hear the voice of the beloved. And it begins to speak to us. And you see why Jesus, like Jesus quoted 27 books of the Old Testament, just, just comments. People would ask him questions. He'd just throw it out. 27 of the 39 books, he quoted them over and over and over and over. Because that word was in him, because he heard his father's voice, not just directly, but he heard it through the word. And then he taught other people to listen to it. And he showed them, you can hear the voice of your father. And you'll keep hearing my voice through it. So who gets to say 
God gets to say. But how does he get to say? He speaks to us through his word. We hear the voice of the beloved through his word. And I want to read, just to close, something Peter said in 2 Peter. And I want you to, just for a second, if you could, just close your eyes. I'm going to read it. I'm not going to make much comment about it. But I want you to, as you read this, think, this is scripture. Who is it pointing to? What's, it tr- what's Peter, as he's, as he's giving us instruction, what's he trying to make us aware of? What's he trying to highlight our attention towards? So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I'll make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. We didn't follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on that sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Father, we know we're always going to wrestle with who gets to say. It just seems part of our nature. And we know we hear the voice of the enemy saying to us, did God really say that? calling into question your truth and your word, and that, that, that we can depend on you to speak to us, guide us. And Lord, we have to admit that we have bought into the temptation. I bought into it. Probably all of us here, Father, that we get to say what's right and what's wrong. And so many times we've made that determination because we haven't liked what you said to us. Know what your will is and we just don't like it. We ask you to forgive us for that. Help us to recognize the folly of that kind of a mentality. We thank you for your word. First, your word and your son Jesus. And then the word that you inspired to be written all the way back from Genesis to Revelation. Jesus said it was all about him and he came to fulfill it. And through him, we can really know you. Father, I I ask today for each of us that are here that you would help us to come back to that place of simply standing on your promises, which we know themselves are not always simple, but to stand on your promises and your word, and again, to seek to live under it like you did. We pray that there would be a new recentering of our lives today that you'd give us the grace to do, to recenter our lives, to hear from you through your word as a way of life, as a rhythm of life. We pray you'd free us from uh, these religious obligations that we put ourselves under, the legalistic approaches to engaging your word that just make us get tired and broken down and worn out. We pray again, Father, that you would help us to come to the place like Jesus did where we hear the voice of the beloved, you, through your word. I pray for people here right now, Father, that Something would happen in, in their hearts through your word, through what this, this meager thing I've offered them today. That you, somehow you would speak into their hearts and awaken them, and awaken 
for them to recognize that the hunger that's in their hearts is not for all these other things, but ultimately it's to hear from you, hear the voice of their beloved. We pray that you'd help us not to be shaken by all the voices around us that tell us that we can figure it out on our own. Said that Peter said it, Lord, and we, we remember it. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but your word stands forever. Thank you for that promise. And we want to risk our lives on that, our faith in that simple promise from you. Amen. Amen. All right. You guys, uh, you can hang around here as long as you want, but I'm going to lunch. Just.